You're listening to Offscript, the Atlantic Canada politics podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and today we're talking about electoral reform. It's been just over a year since Justin Trudeau's government announced it would not be pursuing its platform commitment to make the 2015 federal election the last Canadian election held using First Past the Post. One of the things this podcast is meant to be about is giving people who listen to it the opportunity to learn about ways in which we can govern ourselves and our communities better better here in Atlantic Canada and better in the rest of the country that we're a part of. A part of that is having conversations about how people who aspire to positions of public leadership carry themselves in public life. And another part of it is about exploring the ways we can better improve our democratic institutions. So today on the show, we're talking about electoral reform in Canada, and I'll present it in two parts. The first part, fairly brief, a quick review of where we've been as a country with this conversation on electoral reform over the last few years. And in part two, we'll talk about the research and what it says about electoral reform, look specifically at countries where uh, proportional representation is used for their elections, and look at some of the statements that Justin Trudeau has made being critical of proportional representation and weigh those statements against the facts. To do this, I'll bring in Matt Risser. A few years ago, Matt, myself, and several others wrote a paper modeling five electoral systems for Nova Scotia, and we did the same thing for Canada. And we'll talk about some of the research that points in a different direction than some of the statements our Prime Minister has been making about proportional voting systems. So let's remember exactly where we've been when it comes to the conversation on voting system reform in Canada over the last few years. During the election campaign of 2015, Justin Trudeau promised to make that election the last election to first pass the post. Once he became Prime Minister, there were four different consultation processes to engage Canadians on a very vague question about whether we should change the voting system. His Minister of Democratic Institutions, his First Minister of Democratic Institutions, Maria Monsef, did a cross-country tour engaging Canadians on that question. There was an all-party committee that consulted with experts from around the world and across the country, and they did their own cross-country tour. Each MP was asked to hold a town hall with their constituents to talk about the subject. And after all of that, the website mydemocracy.ca has a very controversial survey that was used to ask Canadians a set of questions about our values and democracy. At the end of all this, the Prime Minister replaced his Democratic Institutions Minister, told her she would not be mandated to change the electoral system, said there was no consensus and that we couldn't move forward as a country. When he was questioned on it by the press, and Canadians, here's some of what he said. It's more than just who might win a few more seats in the next election. It goes to fundamentally how we operate, how we value, and how we hear diverse voices within our parliament. Uh, I always felt that we could make a clear improvement to our political process by offering people to give uh, a preference on your ballot, to rank your ballot. I've heard very clearly that people don't think that's a good thing uh, or that they think it would it would favor uh, liberals too much and therefore uh, I'm not going near it. And then there's proportional representation, which is the one that a lot of people like. Proportional representation in any form of the I respectfully, very respectfully. You think Kelly Lee should have her own party? I think that that's a different conversation. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because, no, no, it's not. It's not at all. The strength of our democracy is we have to pull people together into big parties that have all the diversity of Canada, and we learn to get along. You don't learn to amplify small voices. You learn to listen to all voices, and that's the. That's why we have a system that works so well. Proportional representation would exacerbate small differences within the electorate and give undue influence to small. 
in terms of the other opposition? Uh, I will not move uh, towards any form of proportional representation, but if people want to talk about a different system that might uh, benefit Canadians, like a, like a preferential ballot, I'd be open to that. But uh, uh, we're not discussing it until the next election. Electoral reform is an issue that we've put a fair amount of research into at Springtide over the past several years. So what I thought we would do with this episode is not really focus on the political elements of the discussion, which have been well covered elsewhere, but really turn our minds to questions of what happens in other countries where proportional voting systems are used. Matthew Risser, councillor at large for the town of Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, winning candidate in the town's most recent by-election, held under first past the post. Now that you yourself have won a public election under such a system, are you able to put your blatant self-interest aside in order to talk about what some other voting systems might do for democracy? I think I can manage that. Yeah, I've been a longtime advocate for uh, electoral reform, and I don't think just because I got elected under uh, a first past the post election that uh, my views have changed in any respect. Very diplomatic of you. Um, so first, I should give people uh, some background. So you and I and Marlon McLeod and Angela Hersey all got together about two years ago to write a paper called Better Choices um, and wrote two versions of it, I guess. Uh, first, one to model voting systems for Nova Scotia. And then when the federal government started its thing, uh, consulting on electoral reform, we pulled the band back together in a way and did the same thing for Canada. Uh, this time with the help of Jesse Hitchcock. And in both papers, uh, which we'll, we'll link to in the show notes for the podcast, uh, we weighed the current voting system against four alternative systems and then ranked them against eight criteria, maybe some of which we'll talk about, but probably not all. So what I thought we would do is uh, for this episode, just go through some of the most frequently cited criticisms of proportional representation systems in general, starting with some of the ones that uh, the prime minister himself has been uh, naming uh, over the past few weeks as we've been talking about uh, the promise that was backed out of about a year ago and compare those statements to what we found in our research. Sound good? Sounds good. So when he made the promise, campaign trail Justin Trudeau put it this way when he said that 2015 was going to be the last election under first past the post. We need to know that when we cast a ballot, it counts. That when we vote, it matters. So I'm proposing we make every vote count. Without getting into any of the electoral system stuff yet, what does it mean to you when you hear somebody say, let's make every vote count? Yeah, well, this is a very important question and, and one that doesn't often get uh, its proper uh, attention in the conversation. If I could ask the prime minister one question on the subject, it, it would be what, in your view, makes a vote count? Because that was the promise that was used to, to justify, you know, that 2019 would be the last election under first past the post. And, and if we're not moving towards something that makes every vote count, then why is that OK? Um, mm -hmm. You know, for me, having every vote count means that your vote matters in the outcome of the election in, in terms of it mattered that you voted, um, i.e. that it elects someone. So our current system, you have roughly 40 to 50 percent of the people not voting. Um, of the 50 percent that do vote, another 25 or so vote for losing candidates. So they really have mm -hmm. no influence on the outcome of the election. Um, there's 10 to 15 percent, give or take, of what we would call surplus votes, where those are votes for the winning candidates in the election, but they didn't need them to win because they were over and above um, what was required. So they really didn't have a, a huge impact. Um, and about 20% of the votes, or 20% of the population, rather, um, elects the whole 
the whole legislature. So right now, around 70 to 80 percent of voters have no effect on the outcome of the election, either by not voting, perhaps because they're frustrated with um, their votes mm. not counting, perhaps other reasons, um, or by having their votes have made no difference uh, in the election. You know, so our current system suffers from this. The ranked ballot system that was proposed by the prime minister or favored by the prime minister um, isn't is isn't much better. Um, and proportional representation fixes that problem by eliminating what we would call those wasted votes. Now, mm -hmm. some people object to the characterization of any vote being wasted, right? Um, yeah, there's like a nostalgia get... of the idea that like just marking it and putting it in a box is is, is somehow sort of like a, a ritual worth, I guess, celebrating and, and making sacred, which because maybe it is. Yeah, there was a guy, I remember a quote, I forget the name now, but he said, you know, it's not the voting that's democracy, it's the counting. Now, when I was presenting to um, the uh, Parliamentary Committee on Electoral Reform when they were in Halifax, as we both mm -hmm. did, um, I m made the distinction between what I called input fairness and output fairness, right? Because I think this wasted vote conversation, people wind up talking past one another in a bit of a dialogue of the deaf. So the people yeah. who say... Um, that there's no such thing as a wasted vote or talking about what we would call input fairness, right? That every vote is counted fairly, right? You, yeah, we're, we're really good at that yeah. in Canada. Yeah, we are. I mean, every Western democracy is. I would never take away from Canada that every vote is counted fairly. Elections Canada manages the process very well. You know, we have absolutely nothing to worry about there. But we have to also talk about output fairness, right? In terms of that every vote counts fairly, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that's the, the major difference I cited to the committee. So when people talk about wasted votes, I, I'm really just talking about output fairness, you know, right. that your vote didn't count um, on the output. And that, I mean, that matters so much. I just read a, a book recently that I would recommend to all of your listeners. It's called The Dictator's Handbook, Why Bad Behavior is often oh, yeah. almost, almost Often Good Politics. Uh -huh. um, it, and the basic thrust of the argument is that political leaders have to satisfy the essential interests that keep them in power, they don't stay in power anymore. And so the more you can broaden the definition of those essential interests by making everyone's vote count, right, mm -hmm. the more benefits people will accrue, I would argue, uh, from the government, because the government needs them uh, to stay in power. Um, so, the, you know, we can talk about the, the, the wasted vote concept of making every vote count, you know, it might sound like it's this academic, how many mm -hmm. angels can dance out of a pin kind of exercise, but it's actually terribly important. Yeah, just because every vote gets counted doesn't mean every vote counts. And because yeah. I think the idea of surplus votes is something that people get caught up on is uh, when I've presented that concept, it's gotten questions uh, a few times uh, because people don't they, they get pretty quickly the idea that like, oh, yeah, you vote for losing candidates, your vote is wasted. But the idea of surplus votes not counting, I feel like it's more like if you back a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe campaign where they've said, you know, we need to raise, raise $10,000. And if you pitch in, you're going to get these benefits at this level and this level. If they've already reached $10,000, you're still going to get those benefits if you pitch in, if they're still accepting donations. But the the product or the movie or whatever you're supporting was going to get made anyway. So you're really just sort of like joining on at the last minute. And I think that's kind of what the surplus votes are. It's like they're not um, they're not making a difference. They're just kind of like joining the winning team. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic analogy to, to sort of describe it to people who may not know the intricacies of voting systems as well as all of us nerds.
<laughs> okay, so let's move on to some of the the criticisms that Trudeau has been talking about, and and others have been talking about. Uh, so when he first, uh, I guess, made the announcement or when his minister first made the announcement that the electoral system was not going to be changed. Uh, he wasn't uh, available for a while, uh, but then was eventually challenged at one of his uh, town halls up in Yellowknife. And uh, he gave an answer in the room that was kind of rambly, but you know, uh, basically said it was going to be bad for Canada if we went towards a proportional system. Um, but I think the more precise answer came out when a woman interrupted him in the crowd after the event and challenged him on his anti-proportional representation views. Um, so his response was, do you think Kelly Leach should have her own party? And he said, I think that's a different conversation. He said, no, it's not. It's not at all. Because if you have a party that represented the fringe voices, the periphery of perspectives, they then hold 10, 20 seats in the house and they end up holding the balance of power. So this is probably the question uh, I get most, not just from the anti-PR crowd, but also from genuine skeptics. What do you say when people bring up this argument? Well, I mean, it's a very convenient way of fear-mongering, number one, right? And there's a lot to unpack there. So first off, I don't necessarily accept the premise that keeping fringe views out is a worthy goal. Right. You know, as long as those views respect the constitutional framework within which our democracy operates. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we, if we have a system that's based on keeping certain beliefs out of the legislature and the public discourse, how do you then call yourself a genuine democracy, right? Like who gets to decide which mm -hmm. views are legitimate and which ones aren't? And, you know, I'm not comfortable making that decision right. myself and I don't think anybody else should be either. So. And it's not like he asked her like, should Elizabeth May have her own party? Because she does, yeah. and she would be yeah. one of those uh, leaders that would have 10, maybe 20 seats under a different system. Yeah. And, and I mean, if, so if there were enough people who wanted to vote for a Kelly Leach party, then they should have their fair share of representation. And who am I to say their opinions are invalid, you know, as part of the conversation, even though, given my personal political beliefs, like I would fight that party tooth and nail probably <laughs> in a campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's that's not for any one person to decide which views are legitimate as part of the conversation or not. Um, mm -hmm. But even if we accept for the sake of argument that PR enables more fringe views or, you know, that that I don't think the claim holds water that they would hold the balance of power. Right. So there's a genuine argument to be made. I think that PR will allow um, so-called fringe parties. Um, I hate using that term, but to get their foot in the door. Right. Yeah. To get their fair share of representation with five, 10 percent of the vote, whatever. And this is prevented generally by first past the post. Right. Yeah. Um, but. It also prevents them from having all the power. Right. So mm -hmm. the fringe views get their foot in the door, but they're also more contained. Right. So th there's not a, a democracy in Western Europe where most of the world's, you know, advanced PR countries are that doesn't have some sort of fringe, you know, Kelly Leach kind of party, right? right. None of them are in government because all the mm. other parties got together and said, no, we don't want you in the government. So we're going to build a coalition without you. Right. Yeah. I think that's the thing that I, I'm always amazed at when that argument comes out, especially from politicians. Like I kind of get it from people who aren't in politics, uh, but have just heard the argument. But when a sitting politician says it. it's kind of like they're saying, well, you know, it's, you know, now we have a majority, so it's easy. But, you know, if we had PR and then a fringe party got elected, we just have to work with the neo-Nazi party instead of, you know, the, you know, the other centrist party or the, you know, 
left of center NDP or the, you know, virtually any other party, like they're kind of admitting would be more palatable to have as a government. Um, so why wouldn't they get together with that party? And it's kind of, I don't know, I just imagine all the scenarios where that might actually play out. Like, what does that mean? Like, does that mean we have like a Muslim ban so you can pass the budget? Like what, 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 what broad based party would ever consider having any kind of allegiance with that it just seems like a, a hyperbolic argument that maybe they themselves because that's the other thing i don't necessarily believe that trudeau doesn't believe what he's saying like i don't there are a lot of people who say that you know he's being self-interested because he wants to keep a system that can favor the liberals but i, I get the sense that he genuinely believes that this is this is a fear yeah you don't have to and and sometimes those parties do wind up as part of the governing coalition it's not like they never do but they're also moderated right because they can't govern on their own right now you so you sort of almost provide that release on the pressure valve in a way whereas if you look at the first past the post or the non-proportional countries what happens is there's th those people are shut out of the conversation and you mm -hmm. get this almost pressure build up until there's an explosion and you get a, a donald trump or a brexit or you know ford nation here in canada or you know, the National Front in France with Marine Le Pen, who's, you know, keeps getting closer and closer to being elected president of France. So mm -hmm. it's not as if one system keeps out the fringe and the other lets it in, right? It's it's right. the fringe is there. And how do different systems wrestle with that? And I think, you know, on the balance of PowerPoint, PR actually does a better job of containing them while giving mm -hmm. those people their fair share um, of, of representation, right? And that's the major difference. And the parties that are actually tend to be overpowered, if you would call it that, in PR systems by holding the balance of power, um, are the centrist parties. You know, they're mm -hmm. they're they're, they're generally liberal parties, actually. Um, and, you know, in Germany, the Liberal Party for uh, there the free, the FDP, it's called. Um, they right. were part of every government because they sat at the center, and so that nobody could make a coalition without them. So it's those parties that can go in the center left or center right coalition based on you know which is the more favorable agreement that actually are the ones that wind up overpowered not the fringe parties because the fringe parties are so far on the left or the right generally that they can only do a deal with the left or the right parties you know yeah um and so and I'm just, just as a, sorry go ahead no you go ahead i was just going to make one last point that you know most countries use a threshold too you know four or five percent right. to keep mm -hmm. you know extremely small parties out of their legislatures. So, I mean, if we went to a proportional system in Canada, I couldn't imagine we'd have a four or 5% quota, you know, that we wouldn't right. have it rather. Back to the podcast in a moment. You're listening to Offscript, the Atlantic Canada politics podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we really think you're going to enjoy getting one every week. You can subscribe to the podcast anywhere you get podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. We're on Spotify now, which is a new thing. So if you'd prefer to listen to us there, you can subscribe to the podcast in your Spotify app. If you don't understand any of that, if you're not a podcast person, if you just want to get an email each time a new episode is released, you can do that in the sidebar over on the springtide.ngo website. Go to springtide.ngo slash OS25 for off script episode 25 and see the sidebar there. Punch your email and get an email whenever a new episode is released. So 
So maybe I'm just thinking we've drifted right into talking about proportional systems. And for the listeners that maybe don't have, a, uh, I guess, the, the same background uh, and understanding of what those systems are, I thought I'd maybe just give a, a quick explanation of proportional representation. So proportional representation is essentially the idea that there's some accommodation after you've cast your ballot that the in partisan systems that the party you voted for and the, the party whose candidate you voted for has a representation in the House of Assembly or in the House of Commons that's somewhat uh, roughly correlated to the proportion of people who voted for that party and its candidates. Would you add anything to that? No, I think that's a great example of the principle. Okay. Last week, the Prime Minister noted in his annual interview with uh, Chris Hall at the House on CBC, he noted that proportional representation would, in addition to all the other things we just talked about, exacerbate small differences in the electorate. And I got the sense that he was describing a different kind of thing than just giving small parties a balanced power. I think he was kind of suggesting it would make us a more divided country than we already are. And my take on this, I guess, was, uh, and I've heard this again, in other places. But uh, I think it's kind of tied in with the idea that smaller parties will get more of a voice and that will be encouraging divergent and sometimes extremist uh, political views to kind of fester in the population. But I guess my take on it is just that like, it seems like a generally well accepted principle in psychology and brain science that if you try to repress something in yourself, then then that ends up turning out to be a lot uglier than it otherwise would have been had you let it come out. And I feel like that might be also true at the, the broader level. And the idea of silencing a voice that really wants to come out, my sense has been it's always always gone bad for society and it's always gone bad for groups that have tried to do that. But I'm curious your take on, on I guess, is that what you think he was describing? And, and is that, a, uh, I guess, a, a fear in the PR system? Well, I, I so I do think that's what he was getting at. And uh, like you, on this point, as well as the last one, I think he's genuine in his views, right? That, that yeah. he thinks, I, I think he's sincere, um, but I think he's wrong. I think not only is this not going to be a problem in a PR system, but it's actually less of a problem in a PR system than it is in a first-past-the-post system. So the thinking here is that a PR system, by giving everybody their fair share of representation, is going to precipitate this multiplicity of single issue, special interests, regional parties, right, right. coming forward, uh, unlike the quote-unquote broad-based parties we have now that reconcile things and do things in the national interest. So not only is there no evidence um, that PR would divide us any more than we already are, there's actually strong evidence that it will probably play uh, a unifying role. So every country and every spectrum of politics has different parties and factions and regional interests and class interests that have to be reconciled, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's never going away in any democracy, and it shouldn't, and it's good that we have that. Um, the question of how those interests get reconciled into one party, I mean, there's essentially two ways. So the first past the post way is to generally reconcile them within one party and then have the party form a majority of government with a minority of votes. Now, that winds up with, as you right. say, certain things being repressed. Um, and the PR way is to have a coalition government formed of multiple parties that represent broadly a, a majority of voters, right? Both okay. types of systems have regional or special interest parties or single issue parties, but no more one than the other. So 
First past the post countries like Canada have regional parties like the Bloc, or one could argue the Reform Party. The UK mm. has the Scottish or Welsh Nationalist, and then PR countries have regional parties in Belgium and Germany and Spain and Italy and all over the place, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we have single issue parties. The UK has UKIP, which is a very immigration focused um, party, right? Anti-European. They were part of what led to Brexit. Um, France mm -hmm. has the National Front, which is very similar. Germany has the, but those are two um, non-PR countries. PR countries like Germany and Sweden have, and the Netherlands have the same kind of party. So the, these things are, are there, but there's absolutely no evidence or, or reason to believe that this would be any worse in Canada um if we adopt a pr than it is now right like right yeah. when when new zealand the best case we have recently of a country making the transition right is new zealand and this the the this absolutely did not happen right mm. in new zealand um they still have broadly the same parties it's just they have you know um a more proportional system so it's not going to happen here there is a key way in which first past the post actually divides the country and inflames the cleavages and the tensions, which is that it amplifies some voices and discounts others, right? So kind of at random too. Well, yes and no. So the, the random regionally concentrated votes, right, are amplified and right. widely dispersed votes are, you know, um, uh, dampened. Yeah. Uh, so the Bloc Québécois became the national uh, the the opposition party the main opposition party in 1993 in the federal election while mm. it got a million less votes than reform or the pcs or other parties right, right so yeah. when you you when you have a pr system what you have is all the interests are taken into account because they're the parties get their fair share of the seats or candidates get their fair share of the seats no matter where the voters are and so mm. you get a broader set of interests um, reconciled into a more durable set of, of national policies, right? Like uh, mm -hmm. the German Grand Coalition is a good example of this, or the Nordic countries are, are pretty um, excellent at cross-party agreements, right? And that's, so that's the yeah. difference you have in a PR country, whereas here people are periodically complete, you know, our federal governments, um, whole regions are either shut out of the, the federal government or the opposition caucus. They're not part of, that conversation. So when you when you get a system that takes all those interests into account and then forces them to be reconciled, you know, you would have, mm -hmm. I would say, more national unity. And that doesn't even begin. I just want to do the regional one because that's the main yeah. one in Canada. But that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of inclusivity resulting from, you know, better representation of women or ethnic invisible minorities or different social classes, right? The kind of things that... Uh, we'd be familiar with. So I, I think it would play an absolutely unifying role. And I think the prime minister is sincere, but just wrong on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't remember who it came from, but somebody had criticized him for saying he didn't do his homework before he made the promise and he didn't do his homework before he tried to break the promise. <laughs> um, he might've done his homework. I don't know. He, but I, I agree with you. Yeah. Sincere, but wrong. Um, and I think, yeah, the other thing that about that, I feel like the, you, you touched on it with, when you mentioned durable, uh, public policies, I think people, uh, often it's easy to get excited and frustrated and infuriated about whatever the government of the day is doing on a particular issue, uh, and hope until either 
the next election so that that government can get reelected and continue doing that or another government can come in and stop doing that or start something different that's not being done. And I think the idea of a more durable public policy is probably the the unsexiest, uh, <laughs> I, I guess, idea you could put on the sort of the the list of benefits to a proportional voting system. But I think probably would be the one that, um, you know, we've talked about a few times that, you know, every vote counting is not necessarily the only benefit uh, of a PR system, that there's all these tangential benefits or maybe not tangential, but uh, I guess systemic benefits that come from the system. And I think one of the big ones that people would actually feel on a day-to-day level in terms of how they interact with their government, what they can trust their government for and what they can depend on it for is that idea of it takes policies longer to shift, but they're probably more likely to get them right when they do shift. And I, I remember the uh, one of the statistics that came out of the research was that in proportional systems, there was a higher correspondence between the average public uh, values uh, and, and opinion to the actual policies of, of the country compared to, to first past the post nation. I might not be getting that the wording exactly right, but the concept of, you know, people were genuinely more happily with happy with uh, the policy direction of their governments than in, in first past the post systems uh, seems like something that, again, is not super uh, sexy or easy to put on a on a campaign poster, but probably in the long term, I guess, like, like exercise or like anything <laughs> that's good for you is, you know, the, there's a, a toughness in the beginning and then the, the investment pays off down the road. Yeah. I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Okay. So I thought we would just to, to be kind to our dear prime minister, uh, move on from some of the things that he said, uh, and just talk about, uh, a few of the, the criticisms that's come up most often, uh, I guess when I talk about this stuff or when I share things online about it with our network uh, and just hear what you have to say about them. So a big one, the idea that in proportional systems, uh, it's not a good alternative because it then makes politics all about the parties themselves, if that's what the end result is of how you populate the legislature. Yeah, well, again, so I'm going to, do a lot of uh, questioning the premise, I think, during the course of our time here today. But uh, the first thing I'd say is, why is, you know, why is political party discipline a bad thing? You know, I think too many people, it's too easy a target. It's a cheap target to say, oh, it's bad that we have disciplined political parties. But I think the reason we hate party discipline is because with our adversarial single party government model, you know, under first past the post, it makes party discipline seem a worse thing than it does in other countries that have strong party discipline, you know, but also have collaborative cross-party culture. So I just editorialize there a bit. Um, As far as, so as far as it makes politics all about the parties, I don't, I completely disagree. Um, Shocking, I know. (laughs) Um, What people are generally talking about there is the idea of having party lists, right? And the parties would dominate the lists. And especially under a system of, of closed lists, where um, what that means for your view, uh, listeners is that um, the voter can't decide between different candidates of the same party. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And but I don't see much difference between, you know, first past the post is a closed list system. A ranked ballot would uh, in a single member district would be a closed list system because you only get one candidate 
from the party. So I, you know, even if we okay. had a closed list PR system, I don't see mm-hmm. the difference between the local constituency association nominating one candidate, right, and the voter only voting for one candidate of a different party of the same party, and right. the party convention coming up with a list of candidates, right, and then offering those to the voters. But, right, and the party convention itself can be as democratic as the party or or its members want it to be as well. And I'm pretty sure in Germany it's a legal requirement, right? So in some countries this is an actual look, party democracy is is a legal oh, requirement, yeah. so they can't not be, mm-hmm. you know, democratic in how they how they formulate right. the lists. But those are just closed list PR systems. Actually, PR systems, some other PR systems make things less about the party. Right. So these are the what we would call the open systems where you can choose and you can't do this under first past the post, um, at least the way we're doing it now. You cannot choose between different candidates of the same party. Right. Or ranking candidates across parties or there are other PR systems where you can vote for your local candidate and your party of choice separately. So if you have a local candidate that you really like, but you don't like their party, well, you can still vote for them and. You know, then you can vote for your preferred party because you get a two-part um, kind of ballot. You know, so so there are many options to achieve the principle of PR that actually enhance the openness of the system and would potentially, you know, reduce the party um, discipline in the system. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing. You know what I mean? To, to go back to my questioning, the original right, yeah, question premise. premise yeah. But like Ireland, for example, uses a very candidate-centric PR system, which was actually the same one that was proposed for BC, right? And so members in their parties compete with members of their same party for re-election, right? So th- that actually leads to a lessening of party discipline while you're achieving proportionality. Right, because you're handing more power to the voters to decide which party, which candidate from each party ends up having power. Yeah, and and tons of candidates are defeated not by candidates from other parties, but new candidates from their party, right? Right, right. Um, and, and independents play a bigger role under a system like that. Like uh, right now in Ireland, there are three independent MPs who are ministers in the cabinet. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, so... That's fascinating. Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's one of those things where people think, oh, PR means party lists, which means... You know, parties having more power, which means local or whatever kind of voices being shut out of the system. And it's mm-hmm. it's simply um, not the case. So on the one hand, even the worst PR systems with the closed list um, mm-hmm. for, for on this point, I mean, I, I don't mind closed list PR systems, but even the worst ones for people who would make that criticism are no worse than the closed list system that we have under um, first past the post or the closed list system that we would get under a ranked ballot. Right. Right. We have a we have a list right now. It just happens to only have one name for each party. On <laughs> yeah, it. we sort of divide up. Um, we parcel up the the province or the country, and and there's little regions with one list apiece, one person list. Yeah. And I was at a event here in Ottawa yesterday, uh, and uh, working on a project where we were talking about uh, how you get people to engage in in politics who haven't done so. And he was the the gentleman who made this comment was uh, a dual citizen. He just became a Canadian citizen, but he'd been an American. I think one of the challenges that people often say when you start to describe things like an open list is, like, oh, the ballot's going to be so complicated. But from his perspective, uh, coming to Canada, he said the ballot here is so simple. You know, he's got, you know, basically a ballot that looks like a tax form 
coming from where he's coming from in the United States, where he's voting for, you know, the, the captain or the manager of the municipal water uh, waste collection and treatment facility. And it's, you know, all of this stuff that in it and in that democracy, people have figured out how to do it. And it hasn't, you know, their voter rates aren't great, but it hasn't destroyed anything. So I think getting past the idea of maybe ticking more than one box in a uh, election ballot in a country where people seem to manage just fine with more complicated forms of uh, input for their government. Um, see, see, I guess, yeah, as another criticism we hear is uh, is a bit of a red herring. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it generally helps to believe that people aren't stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, a uh, fundamental principle of democracy. Hmm. So my, my last question for you, Councillor Matthew Risser, you're in power now is electoral reform something that you are thinking about at uh at the local level yeah uh, absolutely um this isn't about just representing parties fairly it's about representing um voters fairly so literally all the stuff i talked about about making votes count applies equally um to munis the municipal level as it would to the provincial or federal level so if you took hrm you know the number of votes that wouldn't count would be roughly similar mm -hmm. to what I cited above for, for federal and provincial elections. Um, right. You know, and most of the flaws that FT, the first past the post causes um, nationally or provincially are equally the case municipally. I should also point out that there are tons of examples around the world where PR is used for local elections. I just mentioned Scotland, you know, the London Assembly in the UK uses PR, most Western European local governments outside of France, you know, cities in Australia mm -hmm. and New Zealand, like this is being used all over the place. In fact, the first public PR election ever in history was a local election in Australia in 1840. Um, here in Canada, Vancouver's really leading the way and I admire them for that. And I absolutely think Nova Scotia municipalities should follow their lead and all municipalities should, should follow mm -hmm. their lead in advocating for this. The, uh, you know, you don't have to have parties for this to matter. Um, the only other thing I'd note, though, is that it's not a, in our province, it's not up and in most provinces, it's not up to the municipalities themselves because their elections are outlined in provincial legislation. So it's not saying we, we couldn't advocate for change. It's just the province would have to be the ones who uh, acquiesced and, and made the change or enabled us to, to move toward proportionality. That is this week's episode of the Offscript podcast, the Atlantic Canada Politics podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Offscript is a podcast produced by Springtide. We are a Canadian charity committed to helping you lead change through politics with your integrity intact. Find us at springtide.ngo. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash springtideco. On Twitter, at springtideco. And you can find me on Twitter, at Mark Coffin. Subscribe to the podcasts, search for Offscript wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're listening on a web browser, you can also subscribe for email updates. If you look in the right-hand sidebar, get a message whenever a new show is released each Wednesday. This one's a little late. Uh, there are a couple things you can do to help the show. A big one is rate and review the podcast in Apple Podcasts. If you only have a second, just make a star rating. If you have a whole minute, write a one-sentence review that tells us and others why you plan to keep listening. It really helps the show. You can share the podcast on Facebook. Find an easy-to-share link at springtide.ngo slash OS25. That's for Offscript episode 25. Better yet, if you thought of someone who might appreciate hearing this conversation, why not just send them that link directly? It's always nice to be thought of, so I'm sure they'll appreciate hearing from you. 